With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Gillian Conley. I am pleased to welcome you this afternoon to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. Today's program is the third in a series of programs created by the Townsend Center for the Humanities and the Commonwealth Club with a focus on how catastrophe has been explored in the arts. Interestingly, this series was created prior to March before the pandemic which means our two organizations were thinking about these issues before the global pandemic and the recent reckoning in the United States and its complicated history of systemic racism. Needless to say, this series is very well-timed. I'm Gillian Conley, Professor of English and Poet in Residence at Sonoma State University. My most recent book is A Little More Red Sun on the Human with Night Books that came out in fall 2019. I'm the author of eight previous collections of poetry, and in 2017 received the Shelley Memorial Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Poetry Society of America. My translations of three books by Henri Michaud, Thousand Times Broken, appeared with City Lights. I couldn't be more thrilled to be speaking with James Porter today in conversation. James Porter is the Irving Stone Professor in Literature and Professor in the Departments of Rhetoric and Classics at UC Berkeley. He's published two books on Nietzsche and classical studies and two books on Greek and Roman aesthetics. In 2017, Porter was the recipient of the C.J. Goodwin Award from the Society for Classical Studies. Porter has also edited several volumes on classics and theory on the body, classicism and Lacan and the classics. He is co-editor of the book series and classical reception published by Oxford University Press called Classical Presences. James Porter gave the 2019 Gray Lectures at Cambridge University, Thinking Through Homer. His most recent book, on which today's conversation will be based, is titled Homer, The Very Idea. It will appear next year with the University of Chicago Press. So let's jump right in, James. And I have a first question to pose. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, a national catastrophe, a historic moment for racial justice, a time that is rife with upheaval and violence. Why should we turn to Homer in 2020? What does Homer have to teach us in these times? Thank you, Gillian. Uh, and thank every, I would like to thank everybody in the audience for making time to attend this event. I'd also like to thank two further names. Timothy Dawn, who was the curator of programs at the Marin Commonwealth Club, and Timothy Hampton, the director of the Townsend Center at Berkeley. This program that we're part of is their brainchild. So very glad to be a part of that. So to address your question about why Homer now, I'd like to begin with a 
brief introduction to Homer, his poetry, why it's important, and then slowly we can inch towards the question of why he's relevant. And the difficulty and the fascinating point of juncture between these two questions, Troy, Homer and Troy, is um, their interrelation. So Homer, the poet, uh, or the poems, I should say, uh, appear sometime around 700 BCE, at the, end of, at the beginning of the Archaic Era. They suddenly appear as if out of the blue, as if by parthenogenesis. Each is fully born, each the size of a hefty novel. So there's something miraculous about this and also inexplicable. The two poems are, as I'm sure most of you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad narrates the war in the last year of a 10-year-long campaign that meant was designed to take down Troy. The Odyssey narrates what happens in the aftermath, at another 10-year sequence in which, in the final year, Odysseus returns back to his home in Ithaca after the war. So Troy was, each of these is related, each of these poems is related to the other by means of a middle term. Troy. Now, Troy, you can see, is a city on Asia Minor, and the Greek forces came out of Greece, in the middle of Greece, the heartland of the mainland, from the Mycenaean strongholds of Argus, Terence, and Mycenae. Mycenae is where Agamemnon had his, hosted his armies, and Sparta is where Menelaus, his brother, the two chiefs of the Greeks, led their conquest uh, for, of Troy. Troy was fought for an abducted woman, Helen, who was fabled to be the most beautiful woman in the ancient world. She was later said in a counter-tradition to be a phantom, uh, a, a, uh, a cloud that never existed. In either case, we could say that the war ended with the massive destruction of a city, thousands of dead, and all for nothing, especially if we listen to the proponents of the phantom tradition, or for glory, if you can argue that that's something to fight over or not. The puzzle about the two poems is that we don't know how they arose. The Homeric poems didn't just appear full grown in that form, they emerged out of a song culture that reached back into the Bronze Age era from 1600 to 1200 BC. The poems may have evolved sometime after that periods from 1,000 to 750 BC. They were carried on through a tradition of oral poetry that was sung and handed down from one generation to the, the next. And with each generation, we can imagine greater embellishment and a further elaboration of what the past was. They conveyed the memory of earliest time. Now, behind all of this is the mystery of the two events. We have Homer on the one hand and Troy on the other. And the difficult question here is that we don't know, as I said, how the poems arose. We don't even know if Homer ever, Homer ever existed. We don't know if Homer existed, and we do not even know if there was such a thing as a Trojan War. The poems describe the war, but there's no historical evidence for it, and this has been a major bone of contention among archaeologists and later readers of Homer. What we do know is that Troy did exist, and it, there was a Troy of some site, or some sort of citadel or fortress on the site of Troy today, which was part of the Hittite Empire in the Bronze Age era. That is all. So somehow connecting the dots between Homer and Troy is a difficult thing to do, 
but also, as we'll see in a moment, we can't read, understand the poems without thinking about Troy as a historical place, at least in the imagination, and vice versa. So would you say that one of the things that keeps drawing us back to Homer is the trauma of a kind of cultural memory that Homer has come to represent? Is there a correlation between our cognitive dissonance with our own catastrophe and the catastrophe of Homer's time? So the question here, let's not jump too quickly to the question of trauma, but lead up to it. The question really is, how do we account for the abiding attraction and canonical status of Homer, a poet who, by all rights, um, should have nothing to say to us today? We could spend hours going over this, and we still would not reach the bottom of the question, why is it that Homer is so important to, has been so important in Western culture until now? There's lots of reasons that have been given the greatness of his poetry. He just deserves to be one of the greatest poets ever known because of the quality of the poetry. His originality, he's the first preserved poet in the West, therefore he gets points just simply for having existed when he did. His sophistication, the primitiveness that he both shows and overcomes. Timeless themes like war, death, beauty, glory, heroism, gods, immortality, the voyage out, the return home. But I think that uh, there's another explanation that's a little bit better than that. Because Homer happens to be the first preserved work of art in the West, he also preserves the record of the first siege in the West, at least in poems or other illustrations of sieges before that. There's another factor, too. The poem picks up in the middle of things. It picks up in a kind of gap in action, uh, that's a standoff that's going nowhere. So book one of the 24 books begins in the 10th year of the war. Ten years on, the Greeks still haven't figured out how to capture uh, Troy. And it maintains the suspension of action right through to the very end. Point being that Troy doesn't ever fall in the course of the Iliad. Now, it's simply being besieged. Its eventual annihilation, however, hangs over the entirety of the poem, like a kind of ghostly aura around it. Troy is going to fall. When we read it or other audiences, Homer's own audience has heard about it, it will already have fallen. It will be reduced to smoke, then ashes, and then merely a tale or a fable, a muthos. So the Iliad describes the events that lead up, and the Odyssey, the PTSD offspring of the Iliad, tells of the aftermath. And at the center of both of these is an event that's never actually told. So we have this extraordinary destruction that is present in its own absence, haunting both poems, the capture of Troy, something like a donut hole. We have to imagine it. And now it's interesting. You could say, well, why didn't Homer fill in the donut and give us the missing piece that we all are uh, so interested in, the actual climax of the battle? And the sad fact is that those poems that did tell of this. There were poems in the so-called epic cycle from the archaic period and earlier that told the story of the capture of Troy. They did not survive, but the Iliad and Odyssey did. So that should tell us something about this mystique that they have built into them. Now we come to the question of the trauma. The connections that bind Troy and Homer are as strong as those that connect the two poems, and that is this traumatic event of the destruction of Troy. 
And here we come up with another irony, which is that if you took away Troy, Homer would not be nearly as interesting and probably not as memorable as he is now. And if you took away Homer, then Troy would have no one to sing of the destruction of Troy. It would just be a preserved site that was discovered in the 19th century, and it's been excavated since, but there would be no mystique around it, and we wouldn't even know probably anything about it except for the fact that its memory was preserved primarily through Homer, who gave the most vivid account, as if he were actually there. So what we have, then, are these two terms, each anchored in the other, but neither anchored in themselves. A Homer who may never have existed, he may have simply been a tradition of poets, on the one hand, and Troy, which was the mythical site of a battle that may never have happened. Uh, but at least the place exists on Earth. And so together, they anchor each other and create, if not a reality, then an effective reality. Now, finally, going back to your point, Gillian, about catastrophe, Homer is all about catastrophe and in many different levels. And so let's just look at a couple of these. To begin with, in book one, the god Apollo visits a plague on the Greek camp for some, some fault that they made with respect to the gods. They betrayed one of the spokespersons of the gods, a prophet, and for that they were punished by Apollo, who is the god of prophecy. So a plague devastates the camp. Secondly, we have the actual killings themselves. The poem is one of the most brutally violent poems from antiquity. Thousands of people die. We're given just a few hundred of them, but they represent the thousands that actually did. At least we're given names. Third, the city is captured. And it's not just captured, but it's annihilated. In Greek, the word for destruction of Troy in Homer is not catastrophe, but annihilation, aphanismos, a complete disappearance of the city. Uh, it's, it's thought to have been in a kind of exaggerated gesture throughout antiquity to have vanished completely. And it wasn't recovered and reestablished until later. In fact, there were relics of Troy that were seen, but the myth of Troy was that it just disappeared. Uh, then we have connected with that an ecological catastrophe, which we'll come to, connected even with the, um, the entire story of Troy is another explanation, which is not simply that the Greeks were off to retrieve Helen, but that they were sent by the gods in a plan of Zeus, his fatal plan, which was seems to have been announced in book, in book one, in the fifth line of the, in the Iliad, with a kind of a vague illusion. But the plan was to depopulate the earth, which was groaning with the weight of too many people. And so the Trojan War existed as a pretext for ridding, um, in a kind of Malthusian way, the excess populations from the earth. So these different kinds of catastrophe run through Homer, and they haunt his poem, and they haunt us whenever we read it today. So the, my suggestion would be that the reason we're attracted to Homer is not just simply because of the grandeur of his poetry, but because of this catastrophic event that they record or that they allude to, and which is difficult to shake off. So given that we know so little about Homer and so little about Troy, what we do know is that Homer was an amalgam of a lot of different poets, a lot of different bards. You made the point that without Homer, we would have no Troy. Without Troy, we would have no Homer. Is it also possible to think that without the tales, the songs, the verses that were discovered, that we would have no Homer? 
So that's like absence upon absence upon absence. And then just tying in with that is why do we credit his poems that are steeped as they are in a in such brutality and so much violence? Why do we hold them at such a venerable place at the foot of, a, of cultural studies, literary studies, at the beginning of Western thought? Okay, so that that's the the that's the biggest question uh, of all. If we look at Homer as a poet of catastrophe and not just simply a poet of heroic glory, then th- the equation changes. Uh, we end up uh, having to ask ourselves questions that point to our own interest and our own investment in Homer at all. But I'd like to make give two questions. This is something. This was a question that was raised in in antiquity itself. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what sort of uh, implication is there for for audiences that take pleasure in a poem uh, as set of poems as violent as both of these? Now, traditionally, the poems don't get read that way. They get read in a kind of gauzy, idealized light. Mm-hmm. But there is a counter tradition of reading poetry, the Homeric poetry, as a poem of catastrophe that is difficult to difficult for that makes reading difficult for us. So let's take two quotations. One is by Theodore Adorno, who wrote in Minimum Morality in 1944-47, he who imagines disasters desires them. So there is a great deal of imagination. Wouldn't you agree, Gillian, in Homer's poetry? And mm-hmm. doesn't the fact that we participate, we collaborate in that imagination, because we're basically filling in gaps that Homer creates for us, and reimagining what he gives us in just song and picturing it in our own minds, isn't there a problem here with the fact that perhaps we want to see and de- desire to see these disasters? Let me give one more quotation, this one from a famous poet named Gillian Connolly from her <laughs> poem, Burnt City, which says, to feel bruised by redemption is just a phrase, but to me it's a very important one. What is it? Can we get some value out of Homer uh, without simply ignoring it, sweeping under the carpet the violence that pervades the poem, and without reconciling it through kind of redemptive humanist reading, which is to say that, um, you know, I don't know, the traditional reading is that uh, individuals somehow can achieve the immortality that's equivalent to what the gods enjoy through song. And it seems to me that that ignores the fact that there's a great deal of death and not just immortality haunting the poem. That's what Adorno in other writings describes. That's what Nietzsche discusses in his critique of Homer and an essay called Homer's Contest. And this is somehow related to what you, Gillian, have said about um, about redemption as itself a kind of bruising uh, emotion. Can you talk a little bit about that? My own reading of Homer, the, especially the Iliad, is it's one graphic battle scene after another. It's quite gory, quite bloody. The language of Homer is gorgeous. The action, the vitality, the sense of human, the power of a human being, of what we are uh, capable of doing, our strength, our beauty, all of that is present in the Iliad. For me as a reader, I, I don't see Homer so much as a humanist, as asking us to find consolation through the Iliad, but rather to watch ourselves as we are engaging, you know, 
we could say we're sitting in the armchair engaging in the violence uh, that he's portraying rather than that seeing that as some kind of aestheticizing of uh, our glorification of violence that he puts it in front of us and we do enjoy it because he has such incredible music in his poetry and as you mentioned before the language and the imagery and yet it seems that Hummer might be also saying to us look at you 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 and you're enjoying this what are you you human being rather than you know providing us with oh here's something violent and here's how you're going to be redeemed from it i don't really i don't see any redemption in the iliad and i and i don't i just personally for myself as a reader i don't see consolation either and that's a very punishing kind of feeling and i'm not saying that we should be masochists when we read homer but i do think that there's a problem about reading homer and enjoy taking pleasure in the poetry and somehow erasing what makes the glorification of heroes and gods possible, which is precisely the killings that go on in the battlefield. I want to go, I'm hoping that we can move from Homer to to the fact of question of poetry, which you know much more about than I do. And I just want to bring out one more point and then move forward. And that is that Homer records an event that is larger than the poetry itself, larger than the conquest of Troy, basically an inexplicable catastrophe that wiped out every major palace center in the Mediterranean across Greece, Asia Minor, into the, uh, um, into the Levant. No one knows exactly what caused this. It's possible that it was due to natural disasters, to earthquakes, fires, earthquake storms, fires, subsequent weakening of palace centers, which led to conquests, maybe of the sort that we are remembered, reminded of in Troy. And this cultural event, which may be somewhat, it's a kind of global pandemic of destruction that could be compared to what we're going through at this very moment. This was the globe for them. And yet we have social media that allows us to connect up and to see that, uh, to see what's going on in Italy or, or Palestine or China and how they're suffering. But at the time we're talking about it, well, all of this happened around 1200 BCE. Suddenly, again, as suddenly as Homer appeared in, in the, on the coattails of this, as it were 500 years later, there's no one actually was able to communicate with others about the destruction in some sort of massive way. All right, now let's go to the ethics and the poetics of, um, of uh, singing about war. The first two words of the Iliad are sing wrath, or wrath sing, main and aida. The poem begins in this way, sing goddess the anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. And here's that line about the will of Zeus was accomplished, referring to the the plan of Zeus, which was to depopulate the world uh, after uh, around 1200 BC, perhaps. And the claim we could make is that Homer somehow records that major systems collapse in his poetry. But he does it through this odd conjunction of celebrating the past through uh, music. And the question is, how do these two comport with each other? What is it to, to, to sing wrath? The first word of the Iliad, by the way, was the most hated word in antiquity. It was the most embarrassing word for all readers of Homer because they asked repeatedly, why does Homer start off with the word wrath? Wrath is such a powerful, angry term. 
and it seems to pollute the poetry that comes afterwards, just as Achilles' own wrath pollutes. The, it is the cause of the destruction of his own warriors, his own team, because he refuses to go out and, and do battle because he's angry with, with um, Agamemnon for having slighted him in some public form. So wrath is there, and the question is that we should put is, uh, how do we understand wrath without the music that sings it? The first two words of the Iliad, in those two words, uh, uh, Homer addresses Homer, the poet, the bard, addresses the muses and says, sing the wrath of Achilles. But he didn't need the word sing because the first word is already itself sung. It's done in a meter, a hexameter meter, a dactylic hexameter, and it's sung to a, a, a musical uh, melody. So the closest analogy that I could find to this today is maybe a contemporary interrogation of the same problem about how we understand violence and song together, or violence and art. And it's by William Kentridge. That's a clip, one minute long, from Zeno writing, which was later incorporated into a, um, an exhibit called Smoke, Fire, and Ashes in Bruges, um, Belgium, uh, in 2017. Smoke, fire, ashes. You couldn't think of a better way of characterizing what happens in Homer. But there's something else intriguing in this in this um, sequence. This um, uh, It's smoke, ashes, and fable. Where are they all now? Perhaps they no longer even fable. And we see these strange marks above the words. And eventually, they the words disappear, and all we're left with is the marks. And the marks seem to be, at this point, what are they exactly? It's a kind of a pictor pictographic riddle. They seem to be javelins that are sticking in the ground like weapons. Uh, in fact, what they are, they are measures of the dactylic hexameter that Homer and Virgil used in their poems of war. And what Kentridge has done is essentially weaponized these measures, these marks, which we use to, to distinguish the, the lengths of syllables, two longs and a long and short short, that's a dactylic hexameter, and then the bars then disintegrate like bombs and land on the ground and collapse. This is one of the most beautiful things in Kentrich's piece here for me is, is the, watching the dactylic hexameter essentially dissolve and break through and fall apart. And so you have the sense of, of that's the meter, that's the song through which the Iliad is sung, and to have that crash down into shards, which is essentially what happens to the Homeric verses and songs and tales until they're gathered up again. It's just a really strong visual representation of, of what happened. And there's something parallel to that going on in Homer's own poetry all the time. That is, his language is turning into actual weapons. After all, there's nothing, nothing strikes a warrior but a word that pierces him and, and, and kills him. And we are constantly being confronted with this question of how do we assemble the meters and rhythms of Homer's poetry when they're constantly blowing up in our hands as a word. I have a question about that. Uh, when In my reading, I read that while listening to the Homeric verses, a lot of people listening would have staffs that they would beat to the dictalic hexameter. So there's a sense right there of a kind of, you know, almost a sort of violence in listening to the tales and in participating in them quite actively in that way. 
And certainly there's a kind of insistence, the banging, and the fact that you can't produce measure unless you create noise and create kind of clash of matter on matter. And we never forget that in Homer. Mm -hmm. And if we were to look at the actual Greek, it would even come out more strongly. But since we don't have actual Greek, but we do have actual English, we can look at a poem that you wrote that I find extremely relevant to what we're discussing. Would you like to read some or all of this poem every epoch? I should probably say I wrote this poem right after 9-11, and that's what I was thinking of. Every epic dreams it has been destroyed by catastrophe. A mass ego only properly exists in earthquakes and catastrophes. A mass ego is in music, the one song everyone loves. But the violence one has to incorporate is great. The joy is mighty. The one song everyone loves, loved. Every epic dreams, time is a water garden in a weedy churchyard. No hell in your draft. There are other terrors. I sleep, you sleep, he, she, it sleeps, you sleep, they sleep, we sleep. The incomparable moon chapter over my enemy. Strong later dozes off in horizon's dank corridor, calm nights along sensorium's riverbank. Objects freed of their utility, completely unmoored, and epic dreams, and one follows any adversary on land, any adversary in the bottom of the brain, an enemy sitting across from a lover, calmly editing a lover her salad, a mirage. A real world could come back to us as an epic, similar to a short while and a further example. Ecstatic child leaning over a pickle barrel, time bruise on a pickle barrel. A few masterpieces droop and epic dreams in the ruinous thereof. Every epic dreams and one follows. Every epic dreams, one follows. As a figment in one setting, beyond this earth, even. The first line, every epic dreams that has been destroyed from catastrophe, comes from Adorno. Adorno and the correspondence between Adorno and Walter Benjamin. And Benjamin is writing Adorno about this, and he he gets the quote from Jules Michelet said every every epic dreams of its successor, and so that's a my line, uh, which I credit all these sources in the book comes from all of those the layers of the, the all that deep thinking about catastrophe. Very good. Um, so what strikes me. Uh, what's frightening about this poem is that it makes catastrophe as a kind of ongoing recycled event um, mm-hmm. that cycles through our imag- the imaginations of cultures and just repeats itself as a reality again and again. If you compare the contemporary catastrophe that we're going through at the moment and the one that we're not just, well, dreaming that we're being destroyed by, but we actually are being destroyed by in so many different levels, Going all the way back to Homer, what sort of uh, lessons do we learn about, I guess, how we how we tell stories about the catastrophes that we run through as we as we live through them, mm-hmm. 
I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is in preparing for this conversation and then getting to revisit Hammer and talk with you as much as I've been able to do, which has been a really enriching experience. It started to occur to me that Hammer is something that returns to us again and again and again and again. When I first started diving back into it, I seemed sort of obsessed with the with the notion of a fixed, you know, a, a, I wanted a fixed text. When was the first time that, that all of these tales get fixed? And then I, I eventually gave up on that and started to realize that what we really have with Homer is the sense of return over and over and over again. And every time someone translates it, it returns to us again. And so it, it, it it's a, both poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are the nature of them is to not be fixed, but, but to keep returning to us. And then I tied that notion with a really wonderful book by Maurice Blanchot, Writing the Disaster, in which he makes the claim that disaster, that it returns again, 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 and that, that ultimately disaster is return. That's what that is. That is, if we were to ha- have a verb linked with the noun disaster, it would be return. As grim as that is, that is something that is conceivably some kind, I, I hesitate to use the word consolation, but it, that's that's why it might be important to go back to Homer and to look catastrophe in that way and realize that within our own catastrophe, this is a return. And the civilizations die. They're born. They're die. They, they and and born. And that's uh, there's a sort of of pattern there. And there's a pattern in the poetry. A pattern that, like in the uh, in the the Kentridge image, though, however, keeps blowing up in our hands as soon as we grasp it. So we have to return in order to piece together a lost fragment of the past. And that seems to be what what is driving the reception of Homer over and over again. It's a kind of way of trying to make sense of the present by fitting it into, or somehow uh, not fitting Homer into, fitting uh, the present moment into a Homeric frame, but somehow making sense of how the past made sense of catastrophe. There's something unifying about that. So, so there was a question that came up about asking about poetics. I'm going to just read a text. So in, in fact, about similes. Homer uses similes, and this is often in contrast to the effects of war on the field. There are comparisons. So if someone dies the way you hear wood choppers in the background chopping trees down. That's the sound of what Ajax's blows on the, the Trojans was making or something of that sort. So the question would be, I suppose, uh, there is simile, there is beauty in Homer. How do we understand that? Does the putting it back in the terms that we set out with, does, does simile redeem? Does poetry as simile as pure poetry somehow redeem war or does it divert us from it? Or does it just create a contrast with, with um, the surroundings? That's a really good question. Just the, just the action of making a simile is to draw away from the actual object. So if Homer, say, you know, he's he has this horrific wound going on with a soldier, for example, and a, a simile is is pulled into it, then we're we're drawn away from the 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 ugliness, the violence of it. That would be the simile would be a 
you know, aestheticizing of violence in that way. It reminds me of a, gosh, with the poetry I'm thinking of right now, the lines read, the blood of children, I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the 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 blood of children flowed down the street like the blood of children. And that is a simile that, you know, doesn't look away and doesn't pull you away. And in fact, points at the problem with, you know, with poeticizing, making something beautiful that should not be beautiful, but just looked at. I noticed that you didn't actually use any similes in your poem. I may be wrong. And I wonder if that was deliberate. And while you're thinking about that, I'm going to read a few lines from a place in where a place in Homer where uh, a warrior, Sarpedon, the son of Zeus, is is killed by the uh, by the Greeks. He's a Trojan, and a simile is used at that very moment, and it does the opposite of pull us away. It pulls us back in. It runs like this: okay. No longer could a man, even a knowing man, have made out the godlike Sarpedon, since he was piled from head to ends of feet under a mass of weapons, the blood and the dust, while others about him kept forever swarming over his dead body as flies through a sheep full of thunder about pails overspilling milk. In the season of the spring, when the milk splashes in the buckets, so they swarmed over the dead man. Mm. I don't see any way to... I hear the simile does not distract us from uh-huh. the the ugliness of the scene. In fact, it reminds us that um, the warrior is unrecognizable, and there's no worse fate for a warrior in Homer than to be unrecognized. That's what fame is all about. And at this moment, uh-huh. he's piled under bodies. Uh-huh. The bodies are like swarming flies uh-huh. around him. Uh-huh. As a poet, how does that work? Well, and there's there's also the notion that that the death is senseless. You know, he dies, and and the 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 milk is flowing. The flies are coming. You know, the, the world goes on. There's no waiting to acknowledge the death, to mourn the death, anything like that. The world just keeps going on. So that that example that you just showed is is a um, does highlight actually the the terror of the of the death. And of the violence. Exactly. The terror is a very nice way to put it. The other point about the similes, and then we'll move on to another question, is that the world of similes is taken out of the present of the poet's audience. These are familiar scenes from Georgic scenes, the farming, cultivation of land. They're also fruitful, milking cows, etc. And they clash, but they clash in a temporal way. present moment that's clashing with the epic past which, of course, does have sheep and milk and, and, and that sort of thing. But they're not. These are, invent, these are inherited images that make no sense in the present at all. So there's also this kind of not just a, ta- a tearing of time, if you like, between the two time zones of the present, the natural world that's familiar to us in this epic past. And here they're being crushed together in some strange way or torn apart. The next question seems to be, does the poem suggest that only through catastrophe the world can be unified? Does the poem suggest that only... Oh, that's really... <laughs> that's a big question. That's a dangerous question because it brings up all kinds of notions of a kind of cleansing, you know, that's, hor- that's sort of horrifying to think about. And is that what it takes 
to bring uh, for unification to happen. But then I have to think about. I immediately think about the the Black Lives Matter movement and the horrible imagery of George Floyd and had that image. I mean, it's horrible to call it an image. Had that had that not that reality, that actuality, not been shown to us in the way that it was, it, it created a lot of reaction. This incredible, optimistic movement for racial justice was born. So that's an example of catastrophe, of a catastrophic event creating unity. It doesn't speak well for humanity that that's what it takes. And we're not even sure that it actually does take that at all. Does it actually produce unity? There's no guarantee that unity will follow from catastrophe. The way the archaic mindset worked was that the world had actually declined away from uh, earlier golden age. Um, so there was no sense that there was a purification of any kind. If anything, there was a kind of thrusting of populations into misery, work, hardship. The present was a, not a very pleasant place. And in many ways, the, the epics were kind of escapist medium, which uh, allowed, although strange to think of war as an escape, but we do that today in the movies. But also even behind that was a golden age in which uh, the world was once in a perfect shape, but there were no, with humans were no longer, were not quite human at that. So it seems like humanity and, and catastrophe seem to go hand in hand. You, you said something in one of our earlier conversations about um, the Stoics and catastrophe. I think you were quoting Marcus Aurelius. I, re- I recommend Marcus Aurelius to anybody that would like to know more about Roman philosophy. But no, so very quickly, um, yes, yeah, so the, the cyclical return that you were talking about, the eternal recurrence, which is where Nietzsche probably got his notion of that, although it existed in Heraclitus as well, was a, a, a way of understanding the world in cosmic terms, that it was constantly falling into what's called an ekpyrosis or a conflagration at the end of a long cycle of time where the, every bit of matter would burn up and nothing was left but fire, and then the world would re- regenerate again. But it would regenerate in exactly the same form as the previous form. Oh, it's horrible. So, well, they, they considered that a good, comforting thing. But yeah. but they lived, in, to borrow a phrase, in the shadow. The Roman Stoics and other Stoics lived in the shadow of catastrophe. What does that mean? And I think we can learn from that. Their idea was that you can only test yourself um, through catastrophe or through this extreme circumstance in order to find out what your metal is and, and how you can live your life forward and produce virtue. So you, the idea that you could become a virtuous person without having suffered a single scratch is nonsense to the Stoics. Mm-hmm. Now, they aren't recommending that we go out, scratch ourselves up on purpose, but they say you don't need to because the world itself is kind of scratch medium. So we have to find the right attitude. And they didn't do it through poetry. They did it through a kind of philosophical imagination in other forms, like writing um, not self-help books, but and not consolations, but manuals that they wrote to each other or just dialogues where they cheered each other on to achieve a kind of stance um, in the world. One of the central ideas concerning catastrophe was the way to deal with catastrophe was to stare it in the face. Yes, right. that's right. That's, that's the notion that... Stare, yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. me was, was, there was no redemption. There was no consolation. You yeah. stared catastrophe right. in the face. When you look at catastrophe or look at some sort of 
dangerous uh, existential threat, as a Stoic did, you're reminded of what it is to be human, not to be superhuman, not to be a god, not to live forever, but just simply who you are, what you are in your form. And that is a kind of non-consolatory, non it doesn't provide solace. Seneca says the only solace there is against death is the fact of mortality itself, which uh-huh. is another way of staring in the face um, uh, the dangers to our lives or our existence. And not simply to stare, I suppose, but also to take measures that would, the Stokes were extremely interested in helping others. And mm-hmm. learning that you're a human, a, a person, a mortal, means that you live in a mortal world shared by others. And so mm-hmm. you have to reach out to them and form communities. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so it's not just simply an individual fight against fate, but actually a kind of common, common mm-hmm. wealth project. It's also fascinating that in our own systems collapse, we're also seeing the promise of a, of a breakdown in systemic racism. So that is another possible outcome of, of the catastrophe that we're in. So, so going back, back to Homer then, would you? we have time for maybe one more question if anyone would like to ask. There was one question about the Bronze Age which maybe takes us off track a bit. But the answer to that was, can you tell us how the Iliad echoes the broader Bronze Age catastrophe? I would just say, read book 12, lines 3 to 35, and you'll see the <laughs> foreshadowings of the what I call the, what Homer calls the aphanismos, or the annihilation of the Trojan plain, where it gets flooded by nine rivers, three gods, earthquakes, fire. And this is, to me, a kind of emblem of that Bronze Age system collapse. So going back to the value of Homer today, does Homer teach us then another way of staring catastrophe in the face, not backing down from it, not fleeing from it? Do you see, Gillian, any ways in which we can inhabit that bruise of time that you're talking about, even through poetry? I think that that Homer does, um, especially when we come to the end of the Iliad, some people are talking about the end of the Iliad. They'll they'll focus on this moment when Priam comes to visit Achilles in his tent, and Achilles has killed Hector. Uh, Hector's like, "Oh my God, he's come to my tent." It's surprising to him because you know I killed his son. And Priam, what Priam wants is Hector's body, and he puts Hector's he puts. Priam puts his hand on Achilles. Homer describes him as Achilles' man-slaying hands, which is interesting because it implies not only did he kill Hector, but he killed lots of other people too. Long story short, um, Achilles agrees. He gives him, he lets him have Hector's body. But that's not where the Iliad ends. It ends with that happening, but then someone, another soldier or someone comes up to Achilles and says, you realize that you're going to die next. You will be killed next. It, you know, there must be vengeance for Hector's death. And that's the end of the of the Iliad. So there's a sense of the violence will, will only continue. It's not, there's not, uh, you know, the, the happy Hollywood ending. And yet so many readers like to read the ending, book 24 of the Iliad, as precisely a lesson in pity and humanity and coming, breaking bread with your enemy, etc. But mm-hmm. as, as Achilles says goodbye to Priam and sends him off with the body of Hector that he's maltreated for so many days, he says, you will have a truce for the next 10 days, but after that, we're going to sack your city. Many more will die. <laughs> so there's no end. There's no happy ending in Homer either. There's one last question um, 
which we'll just mention. And then I think we're going to have to close off the program. Uh, mm-hmm. In what way, someone asked, is the destruction of Troy a metaphor for the 500-year-long catastrophe? And I assume that means the 500 years intervening from 1200, the systems collapse, the fall of the Mediterranean in general, to 700 when Homer Homer's poems seem to crystallize in their somewhat recognizable form as we know them today. It's, a, it's an excellent question. I think the answer has to be yes. But the more disturbing point is that it's a metaphor for us. Or, But I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think it's a, a kind of disturbing sensation that was felt but not understood at the time. And we have to take it in that spirit, not a, a knowing metaphor, because I don't think anyone actually could say in Ionia or we're on the coast of Asia Minor, that there was a systems collapse. That's our term. That's our knowledge. But what we have to recapture is that kind of dim sense of an event that was so overwhelming that it can't even be imagined. Homer may be actually alluding to that by saying it's an event that can only be imagined, um, but can't actually be witnessed. And the fact that Homer himself was blind may be another way of describing of, of so it's like a like a cultural a deep cultural memory that cannot be brought forth exactly and it's that which a kind of also cultural blindness the blind the blindness that can feel in a way that seeing cannot and so that's the sense that homer seems to convey in many ways but that's just a particular reading I would like to, again, thank the Commonwealth Club and encourage viewers to join the Commonwealth Club to stay tuned to the website to see upcoming lectures, presentations such as these, and to thank Jim so much for turning me into a Homer file. (laughs) It's been a real joy. And thank you to Gillian for introducing me to your wonderful poetry, which resonates so well with Homer and with what's going on at the moment. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Music